Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. And off we go. Hey everybody, it's David Summers. Welcome in. It's another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Here comes the story of wrestling in America, as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So now we step back into the ring, back into time. Let's get wall-to-wall, treetop tall. With the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Okay, Ron, I know Saturday you had to have caught the SEC championship game. Oh, of course, man. I mean, I'm a big football fan, especially college. (laughs) uh, Wow. You know, uh, and uh, what a game that was. I mean, geez, uh, pretty amazing. Uh, So, uh, yeah, we're going to have a pretty good playoffs. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. And. You know, uh, a lot of the good bowl games coming, so uh, <laughs> it's not all over yet, Dave, but it's getting pretty close. It's getting close. It is. It's hard to believe we've already been through an entire season, but when you put Alabama and Georgia together, you never know what's going to happen. So, man, I, we we really enjoyed that, and Alabama fans are quite stunned that they're now in the playoffs and maybe another national championship around the corner. All right, listen, I want to begin this studcast. A little differently than usual. I've always wanted to ask some questions that go back to the very first Studcast. And I've been with you since the very first one. And I remember some of those early ones. Your Studcast have changed dramatically, as anybody could imagine, over 327 episodes. More than six years you've been doing this. And you've been doing a remarkable just an amazing job on what I think is just a one of a kind podcast originally. Now, originally in the beginning, every stud cast was stories of your grandfather, Roy Welch founder of your wrestling family, the oldest and largest in the wrestling in, in the sports history period. So I've been trying to track your wrestling family to find out exactly how many there are in it. I know you've done a figure before, but I'm not sure about the family that goes back maybe with your grandfather. Oh, man, I tell you, that's not an easy one, Dave. <laughs> that's a pretty tough one to tackle there. <laughs> Some of the members uh, uh, didn't even wrestle, you know, uh, but they were referees and promoters. They were involved in the sport, but uh, they weren't wrestlers. So uh, so uh, before, you know, but, but you're welcome, man, to give it a shot. All right, see if this is right. After Roy came your grandfather's three brothers, Herb, who I've heard you talk about a lot, uh, with one of his two with with one of his two sons learning to wrestle, Jack and his wife, who both learned to wrestle. Then Lester had two sons that wrestled. One of your one of Roy's sisters had three sons that all learned to wrestle, and Roy and your father that wrestled. Bringing the early family, just an early family total, to like thirteen. Yeah, uh, very good, Dave. Uh, uh, you may have missed one so far. Uh, <laughs> Roy's, Roy's sister's husband, uh, what was named Virgil? Uh, he wasn't a wrestler, but he was a referee. Hmm. So, uh, so that you counted, uh, you know, thirteen. That's that's actually fourteen, and uh, and it gets a lot harder and more complicated from here, especially when Roy's sisters, three sons. Uh, those those boys were born as Hatfields, and they changed their wrestling names to Fields. And my dad complicated it even further by adopting the last name of a guy named Fuller and not using the Welch name as the rest of the family had. 
So that was the end of the second generation of wrestlers in the Welch family. Uh, but uh, then comes the third generation. And uh, Rob and I were Welches uh, who wrestled as Fullers because our dad started out as a Fuller. The Fields brothers, uh, those three guys, had four sons between the, between the three of them, uh, three that wrestled and one that refereed. Uh, Roy had a daughter uh, who was uh, obviously my aunt, and uh, she had a son. His name was Jimmy, and, uh, and Jimmy's father was named Golden, Bill Golden. So Jimmy's father, named Bill Golden, he became a referee and a promoter, and then Bill's brother, uh, Philip, became a promoter. <laughs> so, so, and there's now and then there's even a fourth generation. So I have a son named Chad who wrestled, and uh, Jimmy has a son named Bobby that still wrestles some. Hmm. So as best I can count, uh, that's a total of 26, I think for sure. But heck, I may have even missed somebody, man. <laughs> Wow, stud. I couldn't have, I don't think I could have gotten beyond the second generation. All right. Got another question, though. This one I think is more, per, more pertinent to where we are today. The format of your stud cast have changed a lot of times since your first ones when you first started. As an example, lately, you've been covering two territories, cards, and TVs each episode for a time now with very few learning tree questions. So... Are we going to be going back to, if we're going back to one territory, are we going to get more learning tree questions back in the format again? More oh, that's often. a great question, man. Uh, and uh, that's kind of one that I've been asking myself, man. Uh, we are only three episodes away from the year of 1980. So in the last studcast, I briefly explained why 1980 is going to be so different uh, from the 1979 Studcast. And, and it's going to give me an opportunity for the first time in six years, man, to actually do something I wanted to do from the beginning of the Studcast is teach wrestling history, kind of, you know. And uh, I've been doing some of that, but I'm going to have a lot more time in 2024 because uh, we're going to be in the southeastern year of 1980. And I'm going to be able to focus on one territory again rather than the two. And in 1980, I tried my best. Uh, when we, I'm talking about when I was actually in 1980, I tried my best to become the best wrestling business owner in the world. And to do that, I had to focus on every aspect of what was most important to be successful as a wrestling promoter and owner. And so I want to do the same thing with my studcast in 2024 and beyond that. You know, when you first started, I remember you talking about history, the history of wrestling and how it began with your, how literally wrestling history began with your family so many years ago. That's amazing. And then to, to see this thing evolve after now 300, this is episode number 328. So, all right. So what kind of things are you referring to that you are doing that will make our listeners more knowledgeable about the sport and exactly how things were done. Well, okay, I'll give you a, a few examples, Dave. Uh, we're going to start uh, as soon as we get into 2024 here and uh, 1980 to take these deep dives. Uh, an example of, of where we're going to go, and with one of them, we're, we're going to talk about state athletic commissions that were introduced in the sport way back in the 1940s. And uh, many, uh, you know, uh, by my grandfather, uh, he was responsible for producing a lot of them in the South. Uh, and it was his plan to protect his huge territory from outside promoters. And so eventually these athletic commissions that he started because, uh, you know, they became more powerful than he anticipated they were going to. And then they ended up in the end kind of threatening his ownership <laughs> and later even the sport itself. Wow. So I'm going to teach how these commissions were eventually handled in court and other creative ways. Uh, and another example will be for existing wrestling companies. You know, there's a lot of them out there that are doing these independent shows. They don't have any idea of how to do any of it. So uh, I want to try to help them with deciding what, you know, for instance, What's the perfect size of a wrestling crew in their city or their territory? There's not any territories much out there anymore, 
But there are a lot of independents that run these cities, and they don't know, uh, you know, depending on the, you know, things like the size of their crowds and the numbers of managers, if some of them are going to use managers, the number of tag teams in the territory, all that is going to be, uh, uh, they'll have to be uh, concerning, and uh, they'll have to be figuring uh, how best to handle that. Uh, and a third example I can think of right offhand is uh, the secret for booking spot shows. Uh, that was the smaller cities that didn't run very often, but they were critical to your territory success. Every territory had these little smaller cities that they ran every once in a while. And uh, depending on where your territory was, how big your territory was, it depended on how many of those smaller cities you were going to run each week. And uh, obviously, uh, you needed to get your wrestlers uh, at least six nights worth of work mm-hmm. a week. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, We'll talk about that uh, in the coming year, too. And uh, and uh, no other wrestling podcast is going to cover these subjects. I can tell you that wow. for sure. No, no, there's no way. And, and what's amazing to me is you're talking about uh, you got to get these wrestlers something to do six days a week. And you just don't think about that. You always think about the big card that's in the big coliseum or big location that one Friday or Saturday night. You don't think about the smaller towns that you guys were up and down the road to. That really sounds interesting, Ron. You've never done that type of thing before, like on a regular basis, as far as I can recall, in the six years of these studcasts. You're really going to be taking us on a deep dive inside the sport. Is there anything else new that is going to be coming in studcast for 2024? Like, I guess, and will you still be following along with the weekly cards through the end of like December 1979? Are you still going to do that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, uh, you know, talking about the cards and the rest of this until we get to 2024 and into 1980, uh, you know, uh, on Wednesday, January 3rd, uh, 2024, we're going to be doing studcast number 321, Dave. And uh, and uh, we'll release that on a regular Wednesday and it will be covering the first week in 1980 meaning that every studcast in 2024, we will be talking about the exact same week 44 years ago. (laughs) Okay, that's pretty amazing. That is cool. Every studcast in 2024 covering the card, matches, and TV shows that happened in that same week 44 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, it's hard to believe that uh, things are working out that way. I can't, you know, but it is. We're just about to finish 1979. We're right at the end of the year. But it's, uh, you know, but that isn't what I'm most excited about, Dave. There's something huge, man, on the horizon here. Just as we have started to use Tennessee uh, TV clips in the in the Dothan shows and in the, uh, the southeastern uh, Gulf Coast territory, uh, and they are starting to have a huge impact on the Southeastern Gulf Coast TV shows, we're going to soon be able to use actual audio clips, such as wrestlers' interviews from some 1980 actual Gulf Coast shows in our weekly studcast. Wow. Uh, and the, so I think that's going to be uh, something uh, uh, very, very special. All right, that is so cool. Are you saying that we may be able to start inserting actual interviews from uh, from some future like 1980 TV shows that you have been up till now only able to describe it from memory for us? We'll have sound actualities. Yeah, that's correct, Dave. Uh, since the very first studcast back six years ago, we have only had one tape of an actual complete Southeastern TV show. Hmm. And that was from 1978. So beginning in 2024, we're going to be adding some content from the old classic 1980 Southeastern Gulf Coast TV shows, because now we are getting to the point where we have TV, actual TV shows. Yeah, that's tremendous news, Ryan. I mean, folks are going to love that. Your descriptions are great, but to actually now take your description along with actual interviews, I think that's really going to up the ante on everything. Plus the personality profiles, that's going to light up future Studcast even brighter, no doubt. Well, you know, we have to be, uh, you know, this is not going to start overnight. Uh, We found only basically a small number of 1980 TV shows. 
But as time goes by, mm-hmm. uh, in 1981, 82, and beyond, the number of TV shows we have found grows dramatically, and so will the use of the audios from those shows as well. That's cool. Uh, it sounds like Studcast in the future are potentially about to get even better, if that's even possible. All right, so let's get on the trail. Where do we ride today? Well, we're going to ride into the second week of December 1979. Uh, we got the, the Georgia southeastern knoxville owners uh they're doing their thing at this point and i was in my last week for uh living for the last week for years in fact of of living in tennessee and uh and i wouldn't be back full time until 1988 eight years after this uh, after we leave here uh, in the next episode Uh, thankfully the southeastern gulf coast territory was doing much better than the tennessee territory but it was still suffering through the bad days of early December, like all territories all over the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it stayed that way until Christmas Day for everybody. So we're going to be looking at the December 12th uh, in this one, 1979 Mobile, Alabama card. Uh, it's a very good card, man. Uh, three championship matches and another great TV to promote it. And then we're going to give everyone the results of those matches and the attendances of the three major cities in Alabama. And then I hope that uh, we're going to have enough time to, for another learning tree at the end of this studcast, man. Oh, cool deal. All right. So can't wait to hear who was in those three title matches and maybe find out if the wrestling pro was finally going to get his hands on the so-called super pro. All right. So how about the card in Mobile, Wednesday, December 12th, 1979? Well, we had Ricky Fields in that first match, who was a great little wrestler, man. And, uh, you know, he hadn't been there in a month. The last time he was on a card, he wrestled against Joe Duke. That's a pretty hard night right there. So uh, this card uh, had an excellent opening match. Ricky Fields was going to be against uh, Jimmy Golden. Uh, Joe Duke was having his second handicap match in Mobile. This time he was taking on not just two guys, but a team, the very competent Infernos, as a matter of fact, Joe Duke against the Infernos. Uh, then you're going to uh, get your wish, Dave. Ah. Third match was a special event, and truly that is the wrestling pro Leon Baxter was finally going to get his hands on the Super Pro. Yes. <laughs> then the first of three championship matches was next. The champion Mongolians, managed by the great Mephisto, it sent Kevin Sullivan packing the week before in the Loser Leaf Southeastern match. This time, Jerry Stubbs, uh, who had been teaming up with Kevin, uh, was going to be reuniting with his former partner, and uh, they were tag champions together. He's going to be re- reuniting with my brother, Robert, uh, for the first time in four weeks uh, since that night. They lost the belt four weeks earlier, uh, and uh, they're going to have a chance to, to, uh, to see if they can win them back on this next one. The second main event was for the United States Junior Heavyweight Championship. Norvell Austin was defending. He was the new champion for the third week in a row against the former USA champion, uh, Tony Charles. Because of the interference of Jimmy Golden in three straight title matches, Jimmy was going to be banned from the building after his first opening match of the night. Then the last main event was for the Southeastern Championship. The champion, Bob Armstrong, was defending for the second time now against the Mongolian Stomper. And this time, it's going to be an extremely rare Texas death match for the championship. That's just uh, hardly ever happened. Maybe one of the only times that ever happened. Wow. All right, so that's a tremendous card. Three championship matches. The pro getting his hands on the super pro and Joe LaDuke by himself taking on, as you said, a team that had won many belts, the Infernos. All right, so before we take a look at the TV to promote this excellent card, this is a good spot to take our break. Let's do that. Let's get the break in and come back and check out those matches. That's coming up next as this Studcast continues. This is it, Studcast fans. It's your last chance to get your Tennessee Stud Christmas gifts delivered on time, but it will require you to get your order in by Monday, December 11th, 2023. TNstud.com is the place to go. Click Stud Store. Find t-shirts on special sale for only $15.99 each. 
four different kinds of 8 by 10 photos, only $15 each. And Ron's terrifying novel, Brutus. The book is only $19.99 or the special autographed edition to anyone you name, only $29.99. All shipping is free. Don't miss your opportunity to get that someone special, something special for Christmas. TNstud.com is where you'll find it. All right, StudCast fans, welcome back in. It's episode number 328 of this StudCast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. This one is called Armstrong versus Stomper, Texas Death. And that might be where we're headed. All right, Stud, we have a very good card for the second week in December of 1979. So I know that you are not there again for the TV show, but how did Robert set everything up? What did he tell you about the whole thing and promoting the card. How'd that go? Well, you know, uh, Rob talked to me about these. Uh, uh, Bob talked to me about these, you know, so I got a uh, little information from several different people about these TVs that I wasn't able to be at. So Bob told me that this show opened up with the Mongolians. Uh, they had their tag team belts on. Uh, the Stomper had his TV trophy and the great Mephisto was dressed in Bob says his finest robes and headgear, man. You know, as a good Arab would, I guess. And uh, they all were went to the set with Charlie to open the show. Uh, Mephisto was bragging about how his team had beaten the infidel, he called him, Kevin Sullivan, uh, so badly in the loser leave Southeastern tag match the, the week before that uh, Kevin had to be carried from the ring. And, uh, and uh, he said, to, you know, he told Charlie, he said it was so punishing that the Southeastern officials refused to allow them to sh- reveal it, to show it on the show today. They wanted to show that match, uh, how they beat Kevin up that badly, and uh, the officials wouldn't let them do it. So then Mephisto, you know, he hurried on. He kept he kept going, uh, and he said in the next match uh, that the Southeastern officials that had denied their showing, uh, his Mongolian stomper, uh, was beating Bob Armstrong just as badly as Kevin Sullivan was beaten uh, bef- before he, as he described it, Bob said, before the American referees uh, disqualified his Mongol. And, uh, and he, he was sure that the referees had been instructed by the owners of the Southeastern Company not to let his Mongols win any more championships here. <laughs> so now he's, got the, he's got two of the three. So uh, at this point, uh, Charlie Platt, he'd, he'd hardly been able to get in a word, Bob said, uh, since the brief introduction of the Arab at the very beginning of the show. And uh, he said that uh, Charlie tried to interrupt at this point, but he said the Arab man took a, took a, took his moment away from him. And, uh, and uh, here he went again, right? And this time he said that his Mongolian stomper was going to win his third Southeastern championship in a few days and uh, in some kind of death match against the weak American, uh, Bob Armstrong. <laughs> so Charlie, uh, you know, uh, was upset already a little bit, uh, Mephisto, and he blurted out, it's a Texas death match, right? <laughs> it ain't some kind of death match. It's a Texas death match. But before he could go on, Mephisto jumped back in again, and he says, he says to Charlie, he says, so uh, my Mongol can kill the infidel in this match? <laughs> yeah, <God. laughs> so, so Charlie was beyond upset at that point, right? So he asked Mephisto if, if they'd like to stay at the set and watch and make comments on the very first tag, tag TV match. It was about to come up, right? Because it was going to be against their two tag opponents uh, in the, the next week. Mm-hmm. So Mephisto, Bob said, Mephisto said, I prefer not to spend any more time in the presence of a rude television commentator. <laughs> <laughs> and he said the three of them left the set. So, so it doesn't appear Charlie and uh, Mephisto are going to do too well together. I, I occasionally see the infidel, Charlie Platt, out in the, out in public. Uh, so next time I see him, I have to remind him of that, that uh, he has been referred to. <laughs> He even has been referred to as an infidel. All right, so I can just see Charlie's face after all that. All right, so how about the first TV match? How do you get it started? Well, Rob, Rob is Robert and Jerry. 
Jerry Stubbs, and uh, the, they were the uh, they were the opponents of the Mongolians the next week in the tag championship match. And uh, Bob said Rob and Jerry looked like tag team champions they were a month earlier. Man, he said they picked up right where they left off, and they and they said uh, they actually wrestled the Inferno team that uh, that Joe LaDuke is going to be wrestling against. And he said they won their match obviously over the Inferno team. And the Infernos were just visiting the territory for a week. And that was the case. And a lot of wrestlers would like to come through. They had some time off. They mm-hmm. said, hey, can you book me? They wanted to make a little money while they're there. And uh, so, you know, we were lucky. We had a great team there. And uh, so that we put them on TV. And then uh, Joe Duke's going to be wrestling them all week. So a month earlier, uh, both Jimmy Golden and Norvell Austin, they had Pearl Harbor Rob. And, uh, and they cost Rob and Stubbs. Their belts, their championship belts, and uh, you know, and it was the first title defense against the Mongolians. I think I remember that match. It was the first night back in the territory for Jimmy and Norvell, then making fans think that they were the same good old baby faces that they had been before they left. Everybody knew now that what they were really all about. So, uh, how about the second TV match? He was in that. Well, Tony Charles started it out with the set, out the set with Charlie, and uh, they watched his last try at regaining his United States junior heavyweight belt uh, three weeks after losing it. Lost it on Thanksgiving night to Norvell Austin. And the video from earlier in the week showed Jimmy getting involved again in Charles's and Austin's championship match for the second time in a row. Uh, you know, and uh, so Tony had already asked the Southeastern Commissioner, Don Curtis, if uh, he would consider barring Jimmy Golden from the building on this next championship, this next third upcoming uh, chance to him to win the belt back, you know. And uh, so uh, so after watching both Golden and Austin working him over on the outside of the ring in the video, which they were, you know, uh, he asked Charlie if there was any word from Don Curtis. Has Don Curtis sent any word about what I asked him? Is, is he going to bar him? the building so charlie told him he said you know i have the answer but he goes i'd prefer not to give it to you right now to tony you know uh he says so, you know he, he it was because it was important an important thing and uh and he says it because you know uh yeah, norvell was hoping that you know that uh would uh you tony would uh, stay with him uh for he said uh, norvell austin's going to be in the ring and uh, how about you hang in here with me and watch this match and make some comments, and then I'll let you know uh, what's going on. So Tony said, yeah, of course I'll do that, you know. So the bell rang for the second TV match. Out came Norvell Austin out of the dressing room with his United States junior heavyweight belt on, and Jimmy Golden was following close behind him and uh, got in the ring with him, right? Uh, Jimmy took the belt from Austin and returned to the floor uh, and, uh, and stood in his corner as if he was a manager for him, right? So uh, so Rob described the match as, as he said, Ron, it was a devastating win. He goes, he said, you know, Norville, that diving hit, but he does. He goes, it never takes but one of those to beat a guy. He said, <laughs> he hit the guy with two of them back to back. And then he said, uh, and Tony said, even Tony at the set was like, wow, whoa, I, that, that's a nasty looking thing there, right? He didn't want any of that. So Charlie then, uh, when Jimmy and, uh, and uh, Norvell got out of the ring and ready to go back to the dressing room, Charlie called him over to the set. And Tony was still there. So Tony saw him come and he got up from the set and he kind of backed away. And uh, Charlie told both those guys that Don Curtis had made a decision on a matter that involved all three of them. Mm. So Jimmy, being his newfound self, man, a, a real ass at this point, basically. <laughs> made a smart remark to Tony mm-hmm. standing on the far side of the set about his being the champ's new manager and following him everywhere, including to the ring for all of his matches. <laughs> I'm going to be in his corner, the whole deal, right? So that was a perfect lead in for Charlie. So he said, look, here's what Don Curtis said, man. He says, uh, you know, uh, for this upcoming U.S. junior Title match between the champion Norvell and Tony Charles. He says uh, uh, there, there's going to be a that you not only Jimmy Golden are not going to be allowed at ringside, but you're going to be barred from the building and escorted out by the police before the match. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> There's a little knocking them, a shot in the mouth for Jimmy's, right? <laughs> so the studio popped. Bob told me, he said, the studio popped, man. And he said, but so did Jimmy. He said, Jimmy exploded, man. He got in Charlie's face and Tony Charles, while all this is going on, just kind of slid out of the, out and onto the back to the dressing room. And so uh, it was the, the end of the second segment of the show and both Norvell and Golden we're in Charlie's face screaming, and Charlie just said, let's go to a commercial break. He just went to black. <laughs> All right, so it sounds like <laughs> they were a little bit out of control. That's a, that's a great way to end a segment. Well, well it wasn't over, Dave. <laughs> so they oh. were still there two minutes later when the commercial break came back. Oh. They were still screaming <laughs> at Charlie. And the studio <laughs> audience by that point was booing them like crazy, right? So... Charlie told him, and I said, you get off my set. <laughs> You're disrupting the show. He says, I'm supposed to be on the personality profile set over there right now. You know, and uh, so when he walked away, they were still screaming. All right. So that that's that's awesome. How about the personality profile? How did that go? Rob said that, you know. Uh, Rob did something in this one that he had never done before, and I don't think we had ever done before there. Uh, because of the last profile, uh, the one that showed that tug of war with Joe LaDue was such a powerful uh, uh, personality profile, and it had made an instant star out of Joe LaDue. Rob decided, he goes, uh, why don't we just show that again? And, you know, and, uh, and, you know, uh, for those that may have missed it the week before, so maybe some people didn't get to see it, right? So once Charlie was finally able to get to the profile set and get away from Jimmy and Austin, he apologized for everybody, for Golden and Austin, you know, and that. And then he introduced his guest, Joe LaDuke. And Rob said Joe got a standing ovation from the studio crowd. I mean, he had really made an impact with his, his tug of war. And uh, Joe had a strange-looking... Uh, some type of helmet headgear in his hand when he came to the set. So Charlie got right to the video of the 20 man tug of war recorded and shown the week before. And the studio audience cheered it again, man. They loved it watching it the second time. They had been outside to see it, obviously. So they were into it again. And as Joe finished that 22nd mark and, uh, and all those men that dropped the ropes and they all gathered around him and the, studio crowd so uh so then uh charlie says joe what's what's with the headgear here what's that all about so uh so joe uh, you know joe explained uh what he wanted to do he wanted to do another feat of strength for the fans in this part of the country and he said he had proved his arms and hand strength but he says now i want to prove how strong my neck is so he handed the helmet to charlie and he described, started describing uh, what was on it and how, how the helmet worked, why it looked like what it looked like, and uh, there was a reason for everything. So there was this huge, round, thick metal piece attached to each side of the helmet, and Joe explained that the ropes were going to be hooked to those loops, and then the ropes were going to be connected back to something he was going to pull using just the strength of his neck and legs. So... Bob told me, he says, uh, Charlie had not been told about this part, you know, mm. prior to the profile. But, uh, you know, he said, but it actually worked out as a good idea because Bob said Charlie's reaction to the rest of this was pretty darn special. <laughs> Charlie was freaked out, you know. So Charlie asked Joe, not knowing what he's talking about. And he goes, uh, well, what is it that you're going to be pulling? Right, Joe? You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so. So Joe says to him, he goes, uh, uh, you know, he says, I'm going to be pulling a bus, a 7,000-pound bus. God. God. <laughs> so Bob said, Charlie's mouth dropped open. He said, but so did everybody in the bleachers. He said, everybody just went silent. Did he say a 7,000-pound bus? <laughs> you know, and uh, so... He was totally, Charlie was totally speechless. And uh, Bob said, uh, everybody on the bleachers, man, they were just looking at each other and shaking their heads like, did they, well, I hear him right? You know, and then finally Charlie asked Joe, he goes, uh, so you're going to put this helmet on your head and you're going to attach a 7,000 pound bus to it 
and you're going to pull that bus with no use of your hands or your upper body, just with the strength of your neck and legs? So Joe says, uh, yeah, Charlie. And he goes, uh, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> so Charlie asked him, you know, he says, and so Charlie, I thought, and Bob says, I think Charlie thought this would be kind of cute. He says, he says, he says, well, he says, uh, how far are you going to pull it? Two feet? <laughs> so Joe looks surprised and a little bit upset, you know, with Charlie, but wait a minute. And he says, no, Charlie. He goes, oh, a lot further than that. And he says, how about I pull it 20 feet? <laughs> okay. Okay. Bob said there was another gasp from the crowd, the studio, like 20 feet is going to pull us up now <laughs> with, a, with a, just a helmet on his head <laughs> with, or, or with a 7,000 pound bus. So Charlie asked Joe, uh, oh, when are you planning on doing this? Right. So Joe said, well, how about next Saturday? Right here, outside the studio, just like we did last week. So Charlie was still kind of blown away, man, and he he was, he was fumbling around with his. Bob said couldn't get rid, couldn't really talk much at that, that point. He says he says I guess so. I guess it'd be all right for the southeastern officials. So uh, so Joe asked uh, Charlie, you know, uh, says uh, you know, uh, uh, could he could he say something to the people in the studio? So Charlie said, of course, you know. So Joe asked them, you know, people sitting on the beaches there, you know, he said, would you all all consider please coming a little earlier next Saturday and uh, come outside again like you did last week? And he said, and be part of this exhibition, kind of like you were last week. And uh, hopefully you'll cheer me on like you did last week. So Bob said, man, they answered his request with a huge round of applause. They were People in the studio, they were all ready. Heck, let's do it. We could, we saw something crazy the week before. So this has got to be something awesome, man. So then Charlie closed another classic profile, man. Well, and of course, I know you remember. Channel 4, the old studios, and I'm assuming this is where all this happened, the old studios. The, right. there, was a, there was a tremendous amount of really beautifully kept grass around the studios. So it even the even the the uh, the twenty men pulling him, that took place probably on the grass, right? Yes. Is this is this a similar situation? That, that if you if you walked out there, and I'm sure you probably did, man, uh, that was very firm ground. It was yeah. just like on yeah. asphalt. There was so yeah yeah they were gonna pull that bus. They were bring that bus wow. in and put it on the grass. Wow. Okay. So after beating twenty men in a tug of war on the last profile. He was going to try and pull a 7,000-pound bus 20 feet. He's using the strength of only his neck and his legs, and that's on the next profile? <laughs> that was the plan. Okay. okay. All right. So, I, And I think I remember this. It's been so long. So I don't know how you follow that, but who was on the next TV match? Well, your favorite, Dave, the wrestling pro, Leon Baxter. All right. Man. And this time he wasn't just talking, but he was letting his wrestling do the talking for him, man. And the reason he was there, obviously, was the Super Pro. And uh, so and the Super Pro, uh, once uh, Baxter got into the ring, he felt safe enough. He went to the set with Charlie, and he was going to make some comments on this first upcoming match against the Wrestling Pro, which was going to be the following week in all three of the major cities. So the Super Pro... He was all mouth, man, while the wrestling pro was, uh, you know, uh, taking care of his upcoming uh, uh, opponent in the ring and, uh, and showing why fans loved, that, loved the wrestling pro so much. The guy was so talented, man. So uh, Super Pro, while this is going on, this match, he tells this story of why he's here. He, he tells Charlie, you want to know why I'm here? He goes, uh, he says, you see that man up there in the ring? He goes, that old guy, that over the hill guy. He says, he's ripe for the taking, Charlie. I mean, he says, uh, I'm young, I'm vibrant, I'm, I'm tough. And he goes, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> and uh, that I came here, man, to make myself an overnight star. And how better to do it than beating the world famous wrestling pro? <laughs> he says, and I'm not just going to beat him, Charlie. I'm going to take his mask off. And I'm going to put him out of the sport for good. He says, I'm going to become the one and only pro in wrestling. 
So, so <laughs> the, the mere fact that, the, you know, the wrestling pro, he's up there wrestling, <laughs> that he looks over and he sees a so-called super pro at the set with Charlie talking, running his mouth. He don't know what he's saying. Well, obviously, uh, that made Leon a little angry. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so uh, boy, when he finished his opponent, uh, about the same time as he was finishing his opponent, the superstar picked a, the super pro picked a spot there and, uh, and he charged in the ring. And uh, the pro was getting his hand raised, but the super pro uh, attacked him from behind, man. He nailed him in the back of the head and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, as, a, as a referee was raising his hand. Then the super pro, he showed a side of him that no one had seen, man. All they'd seen this guy do was run. So he was all <laughs> over the wrestling pro. He started stomping him and kicking him in there. Hmm. And then he started trying to take his mask off. Hmm. And, uh, boy, that wrestling pro came to life, man. He's, Bob said he started fighting back, man, like it was for his future, man. And he said as soon as the, he got to his feet, the super pro left the ring and headed for the dressing room. Hmm. So Bob said the wrestling pro then came to the set. And, uh. He wasn't supposed to. He wasn't scheduled to, but he was a, He was mad by this point, and he was irate, I guess is a better word, and uh, at this new so-called pro, and uh, he said, this guy's done nothing, Charlie, since he came here, but run to the dressing room every time I get near him, you know, since I got here. And he goes, and now look what he does to me on TV because he knows I got my back turned. And, uh, and he goes, uh, but uh, that's going to be the last time he's going to get me from behind. <laughs> the, the so-called super pro is going to finally be in the ring face-to-face with the real pro. And he says, and the real pro here is going to take this imposter's mask off, and I'm going to show the world who this guy is. Mm, okay, so you got a total of six matches on TV. This is the third one. This is every bit of main event, in my opinion. That's a what a TV show this was becoming. So, how about the last match in the show? Well, uh, you got the man that always stood them up, boy, uh, old Bob Armstrong. While he was doing his thing in the <laughs> ring, the great Mephisto and the Mongolian Stomper, uh, they went to the set because, uh, you know, Stomper's got this Texas death match for the championship. And, uh, you know, and Mephisto explained how he had demanded this Texas death match uh, for the Southeastern title and that it would be the first time ever uh, that the, they had ever had a Texas death match for a championship. And that his Mongol was in such phenomenal shape that this match assured, because it was a Texas death and it could go on all night, that he was going to win that third Southeastern championship, that Southeastern belt, and set the all-time record that no man before him had ever accomplished. Uh, he would be the first one to own all three titles at the same time in Southeastern. So about the time, uh, you know, Bob won the match with a sleeper hold and invited the Stomper to, to get some. He basically went right over. They're still standing out there running their mouth. Mm-hmm. And he gave the Stomper a little signal, come on, get some right now, you know, and uh, – <laughs> But uh, when the stomper started to hit there, you know, because uh, he wasn't going to be denied, uh, you know, um, the old Mephisto snatched onto him and said, no, 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 no. Let's don't take a chance here, man. I don't think that's a good idea. And ah. he took him to the dressing room. Wow. That's an outstanding TV show, really. All right. So what happened in Mobile only four days later? Well, Jimmy Golden got a win over Ricky Fields. Uh, Joe LaDuke proved, man, his strength again, uh, beating both Infernos. Uh, and, and at the end of it, he ended up putting the bear hug on each one of them, man. So, uh, and I heard, uh, you know, uh, I think it was Bob probably that told me that uh, Joe got a standing ovation from every building. And every building that week, he wrestled those guys. And uh, basically, he got a standing ovation every night in all those buildings. Rob said the two mass pros basically stole the show, man. He said uh, both of them were bleeding, hmm. and they had their masks torn, and the crowds were going crazy, man, in all the buildings, and they, they both got disqualified. But uh, Bob thought the wrestling pro had to be very impressed with his opponent. Hmm. You know, hmm. and nobody had heard anything about this so-called super pro. Yeah. So, uh, 
in the United States Junior Heavyweight Championship match, Tony Charles, uh, he arrived at the ring first, the champion, uh, Norvell Austin. Obviously, didn't have Jimmy Golden with him when he came to the ring because Jimmy had been uh, had been escorted out of the building. Uh, but uh, he did have somebody with him. He had the great Mephisto. And obviously, the fans weren't happy with that. I mean, you know, what the heck is he doing out there? He's not even uh, Austin's manager. So Rob said uh, they were very happy, man, when Tony Charles, he won his belt back, you know. But uh, they instantly got extremely upset, uh, Rob said, because as soon as Tony got his hand raised, the great Mephisto uh, jumped him from behind, and he put him into his camel clutch, which is a hold that, uh, you know, Mephisto had wrestled for me in 76 in southeastern in Knoxville. And while he had this horrible, painful hold where he would sit in guys' back and grab their chin and yeah, yeah. put their arms over, oh, wow, called a camel clutch. And he put the camel clutch on Tony Charles after the match was over. So, um, you know, uh, and he'd hurt a lot of guys with that hold. So My Rob brother... Jim- I, I'm sorry. My brother hurt me with that hold uh, a bunch of times after oh. seeing that on TV. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, so Robert and Jerry Stubbs were on the verge of winning and uh, winning their Southeastern championship belts in the next match uh, from the champion Mongolians. Uh, when uh, all of a sudden, man, Norvell Austin and Jimmy Golden somehow had sneaked back into the building. They did the same thing to Rob that they had done a month earlier. They both came to the ring in the middle of the match without a reason. They jumped him. The referee uh, started trying to stop the match. They threw the ref out of the ring. They they both attacked him. The Mongolians got on top of Jerry Stubbs. And, uh, you know, uh, but uh, the great Malenko then put his camel clutch on Stubbs, right, after after it's all over and Golden and Austin, they, they, they busted Rob's head open and they left him laying in the ring. So then, you know, all the five of those heels, that five of them down there at the ring at that point, they had to fight their way back to the dressing room, especially <laughs> in Mobile. <laughs> so then the Texas Death Southeastern Championship match had ended with Bob Armstrong's hand raised. But for the third time in one night, <laughs> the great Mephisto, at the end of this, Bob gets his hand raised. Mm-hmm. Mephisto tracks it, kicks him from behind and puts Bob in the camel clutch, man. <laughs> so he's had a big night. Mephisto had himself a big night. God, what a night that was. I'm surprised someone didn't get hurt, especially in Mobile with heat like that. How about the attendances in the three major Alabama cities? Well, they all they all held up pretty good, considering it was the second week in December, which is our worst month of the year for, for sports and certainly for wrestling. Montgomery went from 2,500, only went down a couple hundred to 23. Dothan went from 37 down to 33. And uh, Mobile only dropped 100 fans from 3,900 to 3,800. So I was very happy with that. Okay, so it's really been another great one, Stud. And guess what? We are going to have time for a learning tree question, and I'm not backing off of this one. All right. So this one comes from Bill I think it's Aaron in Muncie Valley, Pennsylvania. He asked, when you finished your basketball career at the University of Miami, did you get drafted or offers from the NBA? Anything like that? Okay. <laughs> That's a good question. And it sounds like we're going to be doing a little basketball today, Dave. <laughs> so, so, Mr. <laughs> Arene, I guess that's the way he pronounced it. I, I appreciate your question, sir. Uh, my basketball life was very different from most guys who got involved in the sport. Uh, first of all, my dad never liked me playing basketball. <laughs> he never liked the fact that I was a, that, mm-hmm. that was my choice of game. Yeah. And he thought it was always uh, going to make me skinny. He used to say, you're never going to have any muscle if you keep playing that game. <laughs> so, uh Thankfully, after I got into college, his attitude changed a little bit about that. But uh, but I never played basketball at all until I was a freshman in high school. And I, and I wasn't a, any, a very good per, player until my senior year. And that year, uh, I was able to make the All-State team uh, in Georgia. And uh, just as important to me, though, as the basketball was, 
was the idea that I could get a free college education by playing the game. You know, and, and I don't know how many fans know this, but I actually went my freshman year to Clemson uh, before I transferred to Miami. And I was pretty good at Miami. Uh, I started out as a center there uh, for about uh, for two years and, uh, and enjoyed the game. But because of the background I came from, I never really wanted to go pro like most the basketball players dreamed of, man, mm-hmm. to be an NBA player. Yeah. I, it was not my dream, you know. And, uh, and so when I was in college back in the late 1960s, uh, and besides that, you know, the NBA, uh, at that time, the money playing in the NBA was uh, significantly less than it is today. Well, I can tell mm-hmm. you that. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, top professional wrestlers were making more money than pro basketball players. Back in that time, wow. So, uh, so I know that's hard to believe at this day and time, but that—that's the way it was back in those days. So I never seriously uh, played, you know, in my last two years at Miami. I never really put the effort forth that I could have if I wanted to go pro. If I had wanted to pro go pro, I, I would have done a lot better, and uh, and I would have tried a lot harder. Uh, but, you know, and I wasn't drafted, and I didn't mind. I, I, I didn't want to be. I didn't care about being drafted. And so and I spoke earlier kind of about how my dad felt about the game, you know. And so I, I want to tell a little story here, man. You know, I, I, give a, I want to give fans out there an idea of what kind of uh, encouragement or maybe I should call it discouragement that my father gave me when it came to basketball. And uh, so he came to several games while I was in college, but he came the last game I ever played. Uh, and we were playing at home in Miami, and we were playing against a team that was going to play in the uh, in the Final Four, uh, mm-hmm. Jacksonville, and it had a they had a center named uh, Artis Gilmore. He was uh, seven feet two inches tall, weighed about uh, probably close to three hundred pounds. Uh, 280 or so, I would say. And, uh, you know, my dad had seen me play against him earlier in the year. We played him in Jacksonville. And, uh, you know, he he, he just like, well, wow, what a big guy that guy is. He and all this, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, he he's so – my dad <laughs> invites me to come to breakfast. The, day, the last day, the game of the last, my last game ever, that morning of that game. And uh, we had breakfast together. He says to me, he goes, you know, boy, he goes, uh, uh, you're, you're probably going to wrestle from here on, you know. And uh, he goes, uh, you know, he goes, that artist Gilmore, are y'all playing that guy? And I go, yeah, yeah, he's on. We're playing Jacksonville tonight. And uh, he said, uh, you know, he says, there's a way that you could make every newspaper and television in America, man, if you wanted to. To become a star tonight in the sport of wrestling, he goes, uh, all you need to do is, he says, uh, you can, you know, when you're going back uh, up and down the court, he says, when you're going back after they've scored or whatever, mm-hmm. he says, uh, you get about midcourt and he says, you stop and you catch that artist Gilmore running. He run toward you. He said, he ain't going to be expecting anything. He said, you just step in front of him and you scoop slam him, pick <laughs> him up. And body slam him. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> wow. <Okay. laughs> That's what he says to me. <laughs> and I go, are you kidding? <laughs> he goes, think about it. He goes, uh-huh. think about it. Do you think that it won't be on every television station and every newspaper in the country, the picture of <laughs> you uh, with him up over your head and you slam him on the basketball court? Wow. And I was like, oh, Dad, come on. So uh, I left the breakfast, man, and I went and I found myself all day long just thinking about it, right? God. And a couple of times during that game that night, I stopped in the middle of center court, and here he came. And I was like, uh, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. But, uh, wow. <laughs> that, that uh, you know, so uh, 
Mr. Reen, thank you very much for your question, man. Uh, and then, you know, I really got to be honest with you, Mr. Reen. I mean, uh, growing up in a huge wrestling family, wrestling was really all I ever wanted to do, man. And, uh, but uh, thanks again for your question. Man, that is so interesting. And as you were talking about Artis Gilmore, and, and you mentioned that you were going to, before we started this podcast today, that you were going to be talking about the NBA and him today. And I thought there's a connection to the Wiregrass area here in Southeast Alabama. And I thought maybe it's a connection to Dothan. He was actually born and raised in Chipley, Florida, which is oh, really uh, only about 25, maybe 30 miles from Dothan. Matter of fact, you and I, we had dinner one night, and I think Jerry Stubbs, several were with us, and we went down to Chipley for a wrestling event. That's only been a few years ago. But anyway, Artis Gilmore did spend some time in the Dothan area, just around different gyms when he was in and out of college and before the NBA and even after the NBA. So that is so cool. I knew there was a connection for Artis Gilmore actually raised in Chipley, Florida. Man, I you, never knew that, man. Yeah. You blew me. I might have looked him up. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did some, I did some Googling on that. You blew us away again today, stud. After hearing what is coming soon to the studcast, I can hardly wait on the new year. Listen, I love these learning tree questions. That was so much fun. You always have something crazy coming at the end. Your life has been truly amazing. So I'm going to ask where we're riding next week, but I got to say, you know, there was no sports center play of the week or play of the day. It would have been that. It definitely would have been that. But your dad was right. It would have been on the front page of every sports section (laughs) in every major market in the USA. Oh, it would have made every paper in America, man. Yeah. Uh, maybe all over the world or a lot of places in the world. Yeah, because Artis Gilmore was known uh, across the country as an NBA star. So that's a wow. That is that's a fascinating story. All right. So you were tempted, but you didn't do it, right? Oh no, I didn't do it, man. <laughs> did you give him? Well, the- if, you, if I had, have you'd have seen the picture, <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Did you give him the stink eye? Anything? <laughs> just because your dad was pushing you all right that's a lot of fun all right so where are we riding next week well we're going to be uh, you know in the third week of december 1979 and uh, we're just about completely done with what was maybe the worst year of my life man 1979 and uh, and i'm going to be finally leaving tennessee next week and uh, and i'm going to surprise all those fans down south on the next studcast, uh, you know, and I'm going to show up down there and uh, there'll be an even bigger surprise coming on Christmas night, just a couple of weeks after after this next uh, studcast. So uh, and then uh, we're going to find out, can Big Joe and <laughs> Joe Duke pull the bus? You know, I mean, uh, we'll find out next week and uh, fans are really uh, in for a shock in the next studcast, especially in the main event, man, where the loser leave thing is. Uh, that's going to leave a lot of fans crying, man. Uh, Great Mephisto is going to be donning the tights for the first time in southeastern Gulf Coast. He put three guys in his in his hold, and uh, he's going to be in the ring next week. And uh, so the wrestling pro and the super pro, their war is just beginning, man. They are going to have a real war. Uh, we're going to find out that the super pro is, is not a joke. I mean, <laughs> this guy's good. And uh, so, uh, and so, uh, you know, so fans saddle up, man. Uh, there's still a lot going on uh, before we get to the new year and all those things that we talked about earlier. And hopefully, <laughs> we'll have time for another learning tree question as well. That's awesome. I just discovered Artist Gilmore, of course, is still with us, is 74 years young. Okay, listen, folks, you know how to get up with Ron. You can find Ron on Facebook at Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. Like and follow him there. Automatically become friends with a living legend. On Twitter or X, now known as X. On Twitter, find him at Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow him there too, the same way as on Facebook. Check out his fantastic website, tnstud.com. This studcast will be there. Every studcast ever done is there at tnstud.com. It's also where you can shop the stud store and get 43 Super Stud Cast, four different 8x10 photos, the thrilling lion novel Brutus, personally autographed to you, and t-shirts on special for on sale for Christmas, only $15.99. Ron, how much time if we order today? Can you still get it to us by Christmas? 
I can get it to them uh, to anybody by Christmas if you could get the order in by the 10th of this month. So the 10th, and today is the 6th when we're recording this, and it's going out today. So you've got if you get it done as soon as you can. And plus, you can subscribe now at YouTube Southeastern Rewind and get the best in old school wrestling. Man, if you want to spend some time watching some old school videos, you'll find 370 old school wrestling videos right there. The last 105 stud cast, including this one, 52 stud stories, 87 short rides with the stud, and now 11 great ask the stud question and answer shows, plus a partridge in a pear tree just in time for the holidays. All exclusively on YouTube, Southeastern Rewind. It is the best deal in old school wrestling. All right, any final comments, Stud? Well, I want to thank, obviously, all the fans, man, uh, for their continued support out there. And uh, and uh, because of the time of year we're in here, man, uh, be thankful for what we have, man. Help others as much as you possibly can. And may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at David Summers Productions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.